Welcome to Put Your Heart Into It, the HVC podcast centered around educating providers and staff about common clinical scenarios so that we can better treat our patients. Podcasts on this account are meant for educational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical diagnoses or advice. If you have any clinical symptoms or medical questions, please consult a licensed healthcare provider. Let's get started on this month's podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the HVC podcast. And this is actually the second part of our talk on atrial fibrillation with Dr. Muller. And the first talk was just about evaluation initially of a patient with atrial fibrillation. And the second talk, we'll be talking about the antiarrhythmics and rate control meds. And in about a month, we'll do a third talk talking about procedures. So just to sort of introduce, this is Dr. Carlos Cali Muller. He is our electrophysiologist extraordinaire. And, um, you know, all of us do treat atrial fibrillation. It's just so common now. And he's definitely specializes in that and brings some of the latest treatments. Hello, everybody. So today we're going to talk about antiarrhythmics and rate control agents in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. So initially, maybe just talk about the basic rate control agents. They work for a lot of people. Um, they're not antiarrhythmics, basically beta blockers and the non-digeroperidine calcium channel blockers. So this would be pretty much any beta blocker and medicines like verapamil or diltiazem is often the most used. And these are nice because they can often control the rate, really very little toxicity, just have to watch the, for low blood pressure and low heart rate. That's, that's right. Usually the first medications to start with because as you mentioned, their, their toxicity profile, they are really safe, are beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. Beta blockers, probably the most commonly used, I would say, uh, include metoprolol, uh, carvedilol, uh, bisoprolol, and nadolol, probably as the most, uh, as the most uh, frequent ones that I see used. Also, atenolol, probably an older beta blocker that uh, is not that favored that much anymore. Uh, in particular because atenolol can accumulate in people with, with renal uh, problems. So <clears throat> uh, calcium channel blockers, we have options. The main two options we have is deltiasem and verapamil. Uh, deltiasem, there is an IV form, which is widely available, commonly used for patients in the hospitals. And verapamil also has an IV form, but most commonly used in an oral uh, version. Uh, usually when we treat atrial fibrillation in patients who are not that symptomatic, uh, I feel like we, we tend to go with a rate control strategy frequently. Uh, one, because they don't have any symptoms. And of course, this is assuming that the heart function is normal as we have talked in, the, in our first talk. So uh, when patients are extremely symptomatic during atrial fibrillation, sometimes rate control does not work that well. And that's why we move on to, to rhythm control medications. And those include the antiarrhythmics that we will talk about uh, in a second. Yeah, the rate control IV diltiazem is very common in, in patients. Um, often convert them over to the oral and there's, you know, just to sort of 
summarize, say you're on five milligrams IV an hour, so that's 120 milligrams a day, and you could use that in either like 60 twice a day, short acting, or 120 long acting, and same thing if you're on 10 milligrams an hour to control the rate, you can convert them over to approximately 240 a day in either one dose or a split dose. One medicine that doesn't fall in any exact class is digoxin. Do you want to say a few words about that? Yeah, I think digoxin is an old medication. I believe it's a, it's a good medication for rate control in, in some sense. It doesn't work too well in patients who are very active because it works mainly through the parasympathetic system. So in people who are very active, uh, it loses its main effect. The thing we have to be careful with digoxin is uh, it can be toxic. It can accumulate in the body, especially in settings of a hypokalemia, low potassium, and in patients that have a renal failure, of course. So we have to be very careful with how we start digoxin. The good thing about digoxin is that there is an antidote for it when it becomes toxic, and there is a blood test that we can measure to check its levels. So, but digoxin is a medication you have to be careful with. Uh, always try to give the lowest dose possible. And sometimes we even give it uh, every other day in, in, in older patients uh, to prevent toxicity because toxicity from digoxin can be extremely dangerous and ca can need sometimes even dialysis uh, uh, in patients who get toxic with it. <clears throat> yeah, I think that in the you know, I would say 75 plus in any sort of kidney disease, you have to be extremely careful in really, you know, stage three kidney disease plus, I probably wouldn't use it. In dialysis patients, I wouldn't use it. Um, maybe just inpatient or extremely cautiously. If you check the level, typically on my patients on DIG long-term, I get a level probably once a year. And um, if it's low, that's okay. It doesn't have to be in the therapeutic range. Uh, you just want to, you're just looking really for high level. So dig has a, digoxin has a place and it's a nice niche. It doesn't really drop the blood pressure. That's right. I agree. And we talked about rate control agents. That's something that you had mentioned too, that the one caveat with those is the blood pressure that some people just don't tolerate these medications very well. And that's when we also sometimes move on to antiarrhythmics. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, several ways to split up the antiarrhythmics. Um, there's a, you know, a classification which is somewhat outdated, but we could go through at least, at least some of them. There's a lot of overlap between the classifications. Even on, like, cardiology boards, I don't even think they ask for those classifications. So how, uh, what'd you, what would you like to introduce first, Carlos? Yeah, so first uh, I, will, I will start with uh, what we call are the class one antiarrhythmics. Usually I would say these are the first line of antiarrhythmics that we use because they have a better safety profile compared to the next class, which is the class three antiarrhythmics. The class, uh, uh, class one antiarrhythmics are divided into three different groups. Uh, the class 1A antiarrhythmics are hardly ever used outside the hospital setting. These are quinidine and procainamide and isopyramide, which are the most famous uh, three of them. Uh, you probably have uh, hardly ever heard of them. Disopyramide is one of the few that is uh, useful in people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because it's not only an antiarrhythmic, but it's also proven to decrease the gradient uh, in these patients. Prokinamide 
is a good IV medication. There is no pill form of it. And the IV medicine we sometimes give in the emergency department or in the EP lab to convert people out of atrial fibrillation. And this is a medication that sometimes is asked uh, in the boards in cardiology for the usual patient that comes with WPW, Wolf-Parkinson-White, which is a pre-excitation on the EKG, and they present with atrial fibrillation, and this medication can acutely convert them uh, back to sinus rhythm. And quinidine is, a, is, a, is an old medication which is quite toxic, gives a lot of GI problems, and it is used in people with atrial fibrillation and uh, ventricular tachycardia as well. We hardly ever see the use of this medication anymore. Then the class 1B antiarrhythmics, I also make brief mention of them. The main two are lidocaine, which is an IV medicine that we give in people with ischemic heart disease and ventricular tachycardia, only in the hospital setting, uh, which can also achieve toxic levels too, leading to significant bradycardia. And the other one is the PO form of lidocaine, which is called mexilatin. And mexilatin is also a medication that we use for the treatment of ventricular tachycardia. And we also have to be careful in, with this one in patients with kidney disease. Uh, and then I'll talk about the main, the main antiarrhythmics in a class one, which are a class one C, which are the ones used for atrial fibrillation. And the two available here are flecainide and propafenone. Uh, both are effective. Uh, flecainide is probably the most popular and common one, but I would say that propafenone is probably, a, is probably more effective than flecainide for the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Why? Because propafenone has a, a long-acting version of it, which is, uh, which is quite effective. Uh, flecainide, the main difference between the two is flecainide is cleared mainly by the kidneys, while propafenone is cleared mainly by the liver. So that's something to keep in mind when you give this medication. In people with renal disease, sometimes we prefer to give propafenone. And... Uh, we, the one thing to be careful with is in patients that have both atrial flutter and fibrillation, both flecainide and propafenone can slow down this rhythm and make a slow flutter that can conduct one-to-one -one and give an extreme tachycardia that looks like ventricular tachycardia, and that can be dangerous. So that's something to keep in mind. If you see atrial flutter, probably should stay away from flecainide and propafenone. And lastly is the class 3 enterrhythmics, which is the next... One, one, sorry to interrupt, though. Um, is, um, is there any patients you wouldn't use these on? Like, I know they said, like, decreased ejection fraction or LVH. Yeah. The, the main issue with class 1C antiarrhythmics uh, for AFib is in patients that have a history of uh, coronary artery disease. In patients that have a history of CAD or significant structural heart disease, like, like, depre like depressed TF, you should stay away from class 1C antiarrhythmics. If you did use them, like, would you check EKGs? How would you do that? When you, every time I give any antiarrhythmic, class 1C or class 3, when I start in those medications, I typically check an EKG three or four days later uh, to follow on the QT and the QRS and those segments that tend to change. Now, good that you mentioned that because it's important to know the things that we follow on the EKG in class 1C antiarrhythmics are mainly the PR and the QRS because class 1C antiarrhythmics are sodium channel blockers, to some degree lesser potassium channel blockers. So the things that prolong when you block the sodium channel are the PR and the QRS. So you have to be careful with those things. And then uh, the class 3 antiarrhythmics are mainly, I would say, four of them. 
amiodarone, which is the most uh, popular one maybe because it's a great medication in the sense that it can control atrial fibrillation and arrhythmias in general very well. The only problem is its toxic profile because it can accumulate in the body. It goes to the liver, the thyroid, the lungs. So over time, it can be a dangerous medication that you have to monitor very carefully. I always tell patients this is, not a, this is not a medication to take forever. It's a medication to take maybe for a few months or for a couple of years, but no more than that. Then Sotalol is also a good medication for treatment of atrial fibrillation. The problem is that it can lead to significant bradycardia. It's cleared by the kidneys, so in patients with uh, more than a stage 3 uh, kidney disease, you should not use it because it can lead to QT prolongation and torsats. Dofetilite, probably stronger than Sotalol, not as strong as Amiodron. Uh, and this one is the one that leads to the most of QT prolongation. So Dofetilite, which the brand name is Ticosin, uh, can only be started in the hospital setting. So patients that are going to start Dofetilite, need to be admitted, and then you load this medication in the hospital and you get an EKG two hours after each dose to plan for the next dose. And the QT prolongs significantly with this one. So it's the one that gives you the higher risk of torsats. And then lastly, I would say in the class three is Dronaderon. The brand name is more popular name called Moltac. So Moltac is a medication that was created trying to see to emulate Amiodarone without that toxic part of it, which is the iodine component of it. The problem is that it's not as effective. And you cannot use, you cannot use uh, Moltac in patients that have persistent atrial fibrillation or heart failure, any kind of heart failure, because it can be toxic. Uh, patients with low EF, you can use amiodarone, you can use ticosin, but you have to be careful with Sotalol. Sotalol in patients with a low EF that have no device no ICD can be also dangerous, so it's also it should be avoided. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's that's a good look. That's really where we're at with antiarrhythmics today. Um, just to sort of summarize, you know, you have your dotiazem and beta blockers for rate control. Dig is available. Watch the levels. Flecainide, propafenone, safe except in coronary artery disease. Um, just check the EKGs uh, with initiation and dose increase. Um, Sotalol is great, but watch in kidney patients. And amiodarone, you know, long-term toxicity is there, but short-term has a great safety profile. Um, Multac uh, had a lot of hope coming out, but then didn't, you know, it was found to be, you know, high risk in heart failure. And then I'm not as familiar with dofetilide, probably could use it a little bit more, and I think some of our doctors are pretty comfortable with it. So, you know, thanks a lot. This is a topic you could talk about all day, but um, actually I had to go do a heart cath, and uh, Dr. Uh, Muller is going to go home. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. This shows why you should go to EP. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for listening. Tune in next time for another cardiology-focused episode.